Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. If you're brand new this morning, we've been in a study of the book of Exodus, and uh, we've been looking at the life of Moses, and we'll continue that this morning. I would imagine that most of us know the sinking feeling that wells up in your stomach whenever you're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and you see blue lights flashing. Isn't that a scary feeling? Man, I don't like that. Uh, if you've ever been pulled over for a speeding violation, maybe a broken taillight or something like that, you know the drill. Now, here's the thing. When the officer of the law, whether he be a highway patrolman or a sheriff's deputy or whomever, when he comes to your driver's side window, you roll down your window, he doesn't ask, may I see your Facebook profile picture? Uh, he doesn't ask to see family photos, and he's not going to ask you who you're pulling for in the Super Bowl. No, he really just wants two things. The two most uninteresting things that you have on your person, things that you would probably call boring and uninteresting. He asks to see your license and your registration because that's what he needs legally from a legal perspective. It's everything that he needs by way of, of pertinent information. Now, that's the same thing that applies to the genealogies that oftentimes we come across in the story of the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at here for just a few minutes from Exodus chapter 6. You say, okay, pastor, what do you mean when you say genealogy? Well, a genealogy represents a legal record or a brief family history. And all of us have a family history. A few years ago, while I was out in Murphy over Christmas, uh, my dad and I, we went just three or four miles down the road from where my grandparents lived, and we visited the grave uh, of my great, great, great grandfather, who was buried in the cemetery at Sweet Gum Church just over uh, the North Carolina-Georgia line. Now, I'm, I'm sure some of you can probably trace your family ancestral record back further than that. I don't know, some of y'all might be able to trace your ancestry back to the ark, but we can't. We can get back as far as three greats from me. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I imagine if we were to do a more in-depth research, we could probably go further back. But as the story goes, my great, great, great grandfather with his immediate family, crossed the state line from East Tennessee over into Cherokee County, Western North Carolina, because he was running from the law. He was an outlaw, a bootlegger, a moonshiner. And, and the story is he changed the spelling of his last name so that he wouldn't be identified with the Ware clan that were over on the East Tennessee side of the mountains. And so there are a bunch of W-A-R-E's in western North Carolina that somewhere along the line are probably kin to a, a bunch of W-E-A-Rs over in East Tennessee. And the reason that he did that was to try to throw the law off of his tracks. But you know, family histories are, are interesting. It really is amazing what you might find when you begin digging into those records of the past. And it's important that we know where we come from, where we've been, and, and we really can learn a lot from history. And that's why the genealogies of the Bible are included in the biblical record. Because what we see with a biblical genealogy really is the record of God's activity in the lives of his people. 
It's tangible proof of his faithfulness. Ways in which he acted upon the stage of human history in the lives of people. Now, the fact is, I bet none of you woke up this morning with just this burning desire in your heart to want to do your devotion from a genealogy section of the Bible. In fact, some of you, if I'd announced ahead of time what I was going to be preaching from a genealogy, you probably would have said, hmm, maybe I might catch that online later on, and you'd have found maybe somebody else to listen to this morning. But the idea here, I want you to really understand how important the genealogy is that we find in this sixth chapter of Exodus because it's so very important to the story of Moses and Aaron. It's so very important for uh, the record of God's people in the Old Testament. And the genealogy of Moses is what we're going to look at. Now, one thing that we've seen in our study of Moses is that Moses was very unsure of himself. In fact, when God called Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, Moses sort of came up with every excuse in the world as to why he really wasn't qualified uh, to, to do what God called him to do. It wasn't so much that he was against what God wanted him to do to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses just didn't, he just didn't think that he was the guy for the job. And so he offers a variety of excuses. Uh, he, he claims personal insufficiency, personal weakness. Uh, he says, I, I can't speak. Uh, in fact, you'll notice here in, in the sixth chapter, there in verse 12, he says, how will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. He says the same thing at the end of chapter 6. There in verse 30, Moses says to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So many Bible scholars tend to agree that perhaps Moses might have had a, a speech impediment. Maybe he had a stutter. Maybe he couldn't string words along and communicate well. The point is, he was well aware of his weakness and his insufficiency. Now, what you'll notice is God doesn't come along and sort of pat Moses on the back and say, you can do this. You've got this. He doesn't play to Moses' ego or self-esteem or that kind of thing. No, he redirects Moses' focus. Each time Moses offers an excuse, God redirects his, his focus uh, to, to the Lord, to the I Am, his covenant name. Now, it's interesting to me that sort of in between these, these two excuses where Moses says that he's a man of uncircumcised lips, smack dab in the middle of these two excuses, you find his ancestral family record. And you would think that this brief genealogy that appears here in chapter 6, it, it's a noticeable break in the overall story of what we're reading in Exodus. It almost stands out. Something that perhaps you would have expected maybe back in chapter 2 that, that gives the birth narrative and the story of the events surrounding the birth of Moses. Why is it that the genealogy is mentioned here in this sixth chapter? And in particular, why is it mentioned in between, you know, this statement of Moses, his own weakness? Well, keep in mind, Moses is the one who has written down the Exodus, he's, he's wrote the book of Exodus under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so what he is writing here in this genealogy, this is a very tangible way of reminding Moses and reminding us and reminding everyone else for that matter that God delights in using men and women of weakness. Moses thinks that he can't be used by God because he's a man of uncircumcised lips, but as he's going to discover, there are a lot of skeletons in his family closet. 
Every name that's mentioned in the genealogy is a name of an imperfect, weak person who somehow has a place in the overall story of Moses' life and the people of God. And so that's what I want you to keep in mind. I want to speak from this subject this morning, a brief family history, because that's what we find here of Moses and Aaron, just a little bit of background. Now, I want to begin reading in verse 14, and don't make fun of me the way that I pronounce these names. You just be glad I'm doing it and not having you come up here and do it, okay? Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi, these are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi. Now, take a time out here for just a second. Notice Simeon or Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. These are the, the, the names of the first three sons born to Jacob and Leah. And notice that the other sons are not mentioned. Uh, all of the 12 tribes and their family heads are not mentioned at this point. But the idea is this is Moses and Aaron's story, and it brings us to Levi, their descendants. So Moses and Aaron are Levites. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershom, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jacbed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Napheg, Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel. She bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. Now, look at verses 26 and 27. All right? These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. This Moses and this Aaron, and here is their brief family history. And so I want to speak for just a few minutes from that subject. Now, just by way of just introductory uh, material, you need to be aware of, especially when you come across the genealogies of the Bible as you're reading the Bible, studying the Bible. Uh, notice to begin with how this genealogy is historically important. And that's true of every genealogy that you come across in Scripture. Uh, this is a way of reminding us that we're dealing with real history. And it helps to establish what we're reading in Exodus as historical fact. Uh, it helps place certain events which happen in real time. 
And so what we read here is historically important due to the fact that it helps confirm that the people of Israel were there in Egypt more than 400 years, which means we're reading of something that really happened in history. I mean, folks, the story of the Exodus is not a fictional myth. It's not a made-up tale, but it's a historical fact. It's rooted in history with real people who lived in a real place at a real time, and God did something real in and through their lives. So not only is this historically important, but then notice, secondly, how this genealogy is theologically significant. That is, it has something to teach us about God and his faithfulness. Now, given the fallen condition of the world we live in, uh, often it's tempting to think that the world is spinning out of control. Have you ever felt like that? You think, man, is there going to be anything else that we don't know about fly over our country right now? You think, who is in control? Is anyone in control? But you see, the genealogy reveals that God is always at work. And sometimes through otherwise unknown people, always to bring about the fulfillment of his own purposes in the world and his own promises. And the fact that we can't detect the hand of God does not mean that he's not working in our lives. And so as you're reading through Exodus, it seems as though this genealogy is coming at an odd place, but it's a very important place because this helps establish Moses and Aaron as far as their credential, as far as their place within the covenant community of Israel, and that's something very important. God is honoring his promise that he made all those years before, all those centuries before to Abraham to make him the father of many nations. And so then there's a third thing that we need to understand about this genealogy, and it's this. The genealogy is practically relevant. It's historically important, it's theologically significant, but it's practically relevant. You say, all right, well, how is this practically relevant? I don't see any practical commands or instructions in these verses. There's no specific points of application mentioned here. And yet, you and I need to remember when we come across the genealogies of of the Bible, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and as such, it's profitable for doctrine and correction and training in righteousness and all such as that. So this is is the Word of God, and, and listen, this is the record of God's faithfulness in the lives of His people. So even though at the surface you don't find anything uh, from a practical standpoint, if you study beyond the surface and you do a little bit of digging, just like you would if you were doing your own research on some ancestry database, and you know you can pay money now and you can do a lot of research online, you can send off a DNA sample and you can find out you know, just how far back your family line goes and that kind of thing. If you do some research here, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll discover that there's some wonderful, practical nuggets of truth here in the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And so that's what I want to see. For just a few moments, notice some practical, um, what I would say practical reminders that we can take away from a passage of Scripture like this. So number one, notice with me how there are no insignificant people in the family of God. When I come across a genealogy like this, it, it reminds me that there ultimately are no insignificant people in the family of God. You know, someone has well said that the Bible is history's most honest book. In no way does the Bible flatter the people of God. There are no embellishments here. 
And it's interesting how you oftentimes see God choosing to use individuals who, in their own eyes, they, they lacked ability. They lacked confidence. Certainly, certainly that's true of Moses. Moses understands his own weakness. He struggles. And yet, this same Moses, whom God chooses to use to lead the people of Israel up out of their bondage, he believed he was insufficient for what God had called him to. And, and, and Moses believes he's unable to do it. Now, he was unable to do it by himself. God didn't call him to do it uh, and, and to carry Israel out on his own shoulders. That's not what Moses was to do. So he's not opposing the plan of God to rescue the people. Moses just doesn't see how he could ever be used of God. And so there's a sense in which Moses is going to join ranks with a long line of people, even in his own ancestral record, who were just average, ordinary folks, imperfect folks, that somehow had some role to play in the overall plan of God, ultimately in bringing the Savior into the world. God keeps his promises, men and women, even when it doesn't seem like that. So rather than encouraging Moses by playing to his ego, Moses would, he would say to Moses, you, you, you think you're unimpressive? You have no idea just how unimpressive you really are. But just because you're unimpressive does not mean that you're insignificant. God's not impressed by what we can do, what we think we can do, by our talents, by our abilities, and all of those things. The fact of the matter is he does not need me, he does not need you, but by means of his grace, he chooses to use folks just like me and you, all for the sake of his own glory. And so that does not mean that we're insignificant. Now, if my math is right, you'll notice there are roughly 17 names mentioned through the end of verse 16. And of those 17 names, more than likely, there are probably only three or so that stand out to you maybe as being somewhat familiar. You see the name Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Again, these were the first three sons born to Jacob and Leah, according to Genesis 29. But for the most part, the vast majority of names in this genealogy, uh, these are names of people whom we virtually know nothing about. Some of the names mentioned here aren't found anywhere else in the Bible. There's nothing else we know about these individuals. And so here, here's something you can remember when you're reading a genealogy. It illustrates for us the importance of individual people to our God. Aren't you glad that God is a God of detail and order? He knows who you are. He knows what's going on in your life. The Bible says that the very numbers of the hairs of your head are all numbered. 2 Timothy 2.19, the scripture says that the Lord knows those who are his. And so even though we may not be familiar with these names or what they did, they represent average, ordinary men and women just like us. They had the same struggles that we have. They had the same sinful proclivities that we have. They wrestled with many of the same problems that we deal with every day in our own lives. And they all had their own unique personalities. And that's evident from their names. In fact, biblical names oftentimes will give you insight into a person's character. A Bible name oftentimes would give you an insight into a person's personality or a particular physical attribute of that person. For instance, the name Hanuk that's mentioned there in verse 14, it means dedicated. Palu, it means extraordinary. 
His parents were like a lot of parents I know who just believe their kids are the most absolute gifted kids. You remember the bumper stickers that the school systems put out some years ago that said proud parent of some extraordinarily gifted kid or something like that? I never had one of those on our bumper sticker when I was growing up, I'll be honest. So his parents were probably proud of, of Palu, that kind of thing. Uh, Hezron, it means surrounded by a wall. Carmi, it's a name that means gardener. The name Korah mentioned down in verse 21 means baldy. <laughs> so that means you don't have to be the most well-known, strongest, smartest for God to use you. You don't even have to have hair for God to use you. He uses ordinary people just like me, just like you, every single day. Now, folks, listen, I am absolutely convinced that the gospel will not be advanced through the world, throughout the world, by a few really gifted individuals, some heavy hitters, some superstars in Christianity. God never advances the gospel. I'm grateful for the contributions of those who perhaps are more well-known, but for the most part, the gospel advances all throughout the world through the lives and the witness of ordinary men and women just like me and you. I think Luke you know, goes through great lengths to establish that in the book of Acts, that it's not the ministry professionals who oftentimes are the most useful and, and God's preferred means of advancing the gospel throughout the world. It's, it's ordinary, it's the witness of ordinary Christian men and women just like us each and every day as you're living out your life. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Joshua Project, but I was doing some reading this week. Joshua Project really keeps up with the state of lostness around the world and unreached people groups. But they report that there's somewhere around 7,300 unreached people groups, which comprise roughly 3.2 billion people on planet Earth. And the people living in those, those people groups in these particular regions, most of which is in the 1040 window, uh, Asia, North Africa, the Middle East, they're classified as being unreached because as it stands now, there's no legitimate way someone could hear the gospel there before they die. There's no one focused on reaching these unreached people groups. There are no churches there in these, these, these places. Oftentimes, there's not even a copy of the Bible in their own language. And so the vast majority of these unreached people groups are living in a part of the world in the 1040 window. Roughly 85% of these unreached people groups are living there, and less than 10% of mission work is done among these unreached people groups. But 90% of our mission efforts are often focused on places perhaps like this where there are churches literally on every corner. Now the fact of the matter is God knows who those people are. He knows every single person living in the 1040 window. He knows their fears. He knows their anxieties. He knows their family history. He knows just how much they need the gospel of his own dear son. But my question is this, how will they ever hear without a preacher? And how will they preach except they be sent? And who is it that God chooses to use to reach people? It's people just like me and you. 
and you're sitting there and you feel you're, unre- you're restless. Surely God has saved me for more than to just sit me on a church pew. Yes, he has saved you for more than that. He wants to use you in his mission. Listen, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. And that mission is carried out by regular folks like me, like you. And you say, who am I? I have so much weakness in my own life. I've never been to seminary. Listen, you're just the type of person that God is looking for. So there are no insignificant people in the family of God. Now, there's a second thing that this genealogy shows me, and it's this. There are no insignificant tasks in the service of God. Now, notice that the genealogy sort of narrows down to Levi and the sons of Levi. So Moses and Aaron, they're Levites. And the family record here, this is not by accident. It's God's way of reminding us that he's prepared Moses and Aaron as descendants of Levi for their ministry here in leading the people out of Egypt. It's all part of God's providential working behind the scenes in their lives. Now, Levi had three sons, and their names are mentioned there, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath has a son named Amram. Amram is the father of Moses and Aaron. So again, they're, they're Levites. But you see, the, the, the sons of Levi, those three sons and their descendants are going to have a very significant role to play later on in Israel's history as, as basically they're responsible for the oversight of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the system of worship later on even in the temple once Israel is settled into the land and the temple is built. Now, you don't have to go there, but in Numbers chapter 3, if you were a descendant of Gershon, then you were in charge of the curtains of the tabernacle. The whole structure, the coverings, the, the, the curtains, that kind of thing, that was your responsibility. If you were a descendant of Kohath, you were responsible for all of the interior design of the tabernacle, all of the furnishings, the, the pieces of furniture there. If you were a descendant of Merari, you were sort of a structural engineer of sorts, which means that you were responsible for doing all of the heavy lifting. So the point is, all of the sons of Levi had some important contribution to play so that corporate worship could be a reality in the life of Israel. They all had a clearly defined role to serve. And all of those tasks might sound mundane to us, but let me tell you, they were essential whenever it came to the corporate worship of God. They each held a place of honor in Israelite society. By the way, it was a Levite who said this in Psalm 84, verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. What joy it is to just be a doorkeeper and to serve a mundane task, thank God that I can do it for the glory of God. The fact of the matter is there's no such thing as mundane or insignificant service to our God. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, you will in no way lose your reward. No insignificant people in the family of God. No insignificant tasks in the service of God. So today, you could probably say that the Gershonites and the Kohathites and the Merariites, they would all serve as ushers and greeters in the local church. 
Men and women who just serve in a variety of capacities behind the scenes. On Saturday, they're the ones who show up for the church work day. On Sunday, they're there passing out bulletins or preparing elements for the Lord's Supper or assisting the pastors uh, when you have a couple dozen to baptize. I'm telling you, folks, we've got an army of people in this fellowship who serve in so many capacities in the life of our church. I mean, just think about what goes into a typical Sunday morning. I think about uh, uh, Terry Black on Sunday morning. How many of you, if you come in on the A entrance, you're really grateful for Terry on a rainy Sunday morning as he's out there with an umbrella, you know, escorting people out of their vehicle. Or I think about others sitting at the doors right back here greeting people, Bruce Lambert. I think about our staff and each role that men and women on our staff play. I think about Steve McDaniel, our facilities manager, who's working behind the... You don't know what he deals with on a given week with a campus this size. There's a lot of stuff. Something breaks. Guess who gets called? If it's too cold or too hot in a worship center, guess who gets a thousand texts? It ain't me. I think about those who teach, Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, people who serve down the preschool hallway, people who serve down the children's hallway, uh, those who serve in student ministry. Folks, aren't you grateful for those who serve in just a variety of capacities that uh, behind the scenes oftentimes, not so much those that are on the platform and visible, but those that are behind the scenes. One of these days, I really believe that those who had a more visible role in service, we're gonna take a back seat to those who were uh, serving the Lord behind the scenes. I think they're gonna be closer to the throne of the Lord Jesus than perhaps those who were more visible. So there is no such thing as insignificant service when it's done in Jesus' name. If you get discouraged, if you think what you do doesn't get noticed, let me tell you, it does get noticed by heaven. And that's what matters more than anything else. No insignificant people in the family of God. No insignificant tasks in the service of God. Now, on a more serious note, notice number three. There are no insignificant sins in the estimate of God. Each person that's named here in this genealogical record was a sinner. He or she is a descendant of Adam, and as such, they're imperfect people who need a Savior. And oftentimes, you'll find sordid details of sexual sin and brokenness demonstrated in the lives of many of those who are mentioned in the genealogy. There's a lot of skeletons in the family closet. Uh, Reuben, for example, you go to Genesis 35, and you can read about a sordid you know, tale that happened with Reuben. Uh, Simeon and Levi, they become so enraged and they, 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 they avenge their sister in Genesis chapter 34. They kill all the men in a particular city. Korah, he rebels against Moses and Aaron later on and he's swallowed up whole as the ground opens up beneath his feet. Tries to lead a rebellion. Numbers chapter 16. Even right here, we're told that Amram, Moses' father, married his own aunt which is something later on when the law of God is given at Mount Sinai, that's, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a big no-no. God's clear in his law. You say, okay, and by the way, sometimes people want to say uh, as, as an excuse to try to, they think that, they, that they've got you, you know, as a, as a Christian. They say, well, what about this and what about that that you find in the Bible? You need to distinguish the difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible endorses. 
What is God's sexual ethic? It's right here in the pages of his word. What's his ideal for humanity? One man, one woman who are married. That's his ideal for marriage. Genesis 1 and 2. And the fact that you read about all of this brokenness in the lives and in the family history of the people of God, it's just the scripture being honest about the imperfect people that God chooses and uses. And you say, well, why does he use such imperfect people? Well, who else does he have to work with? We're all he's got to work with. So morally speaking, the family line is unimpressive. And then you think about Moses. Moses himself killed an Egyptian. And so combined with his lack of speaking ability, it seems strange that God would choose him as his mouthpiece, yet that's exactly what God does. So don't miss the emphasis there in verse 26 and verse 27. This is the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out my people. This Moses and this Aaron, imperfect, weak, incapable, just like everyone else in their family history. And so it just seems that the genealogy shows us how unimpressive his chosen people are. He takes sin seriously. It must be met in the fierceness of his wrath. And someone says, well, how in the world? What, what's the point of it all? How can God use? If he's holy, how can he use sinful and imperfect people like these and like me and like you? Brings me to my fourth and last point. There are no insignificant parts of the plan of God. Because even in this genealogy and even in this crooked family tree that we find in Exodus chapter 6, there's a glimmer of hope. There's an echo of mercy. There's a whisper of love. Verse 23 says that Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. So notice those two names, Aminadab and Nashon. Now you need to know that each time that a baby was born in Israelite society, it was a reminder of God's promise to bring a redeemer into the world. Went all the way back to the initial promise God made in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent. And all of the genealogical record that we read about in Scripture is merely the story of how God is working in human history to do that, to bring human history to a particular point where he himself is going to give his own son to the world who's going to be born. So Aaron takes Elisheba as his wife. She's the daughter of Amenadab, sister of Nashon. We see these names mentioned in a couple of other places in the Scripture. Now the thing is, Amenadab and Nashon, they were not Levites. They were of the tribe of Judah. Uh, for example, they're mentioned in Ruth chapter 4. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, you know it begins in a time of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet, the little book ends with the genealogy in chapter 4. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, the king. So Amenadab's a descendant not of Levi, but Judah. He and his son are included in the genealogy of David, but that's not all because they're mentioned again once you cross the threshold from the Old Testament to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. Here's how the New Testament begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brethren, Judah the father of Perez, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon. So here's the point, men and women. These names represent individual threads in a scarlet cord of redemption that takes us all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the deliverer who was promised to come. The one that Moses and Aaron were just a, a symbol of. They were deliverers in their own right, but not, nowhere near like the Lord Jesus Christ and the exodus that he's led men and women out of their sin and into eternal life. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've messed up in life. You don't know my family history to which I would say it doesn't matter. I don't need to know that. God knows all about that. But God's already made sufficient atonement for sin through the death of his own son whom he gave. And all of these biblical genealogies is just simply a record, a record, a record that points me to the hope that I have in God's own son. You've got hope when you look to Christ. So imagine if your own name were to appear in a genealogical list one of these days. Let's say the Lord Terry's is coming 100 years from now. Your great, great, great grandson is doing research on your life. What might he find about you? What might he read up about you? Now, the thing is, the most important thing for you is not your brief family history, as important as that may be. No, the most important thing is whether or not you have bright hope for your future. Because really, the only thing that matters is whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. So we come into this world, we're all descendants of Adam, alienated from God, without hope, without Christ. We need to be saved. But the good news of the gospel is, is that God specializes in taking people from Adam's family tree and placing them in the lineage of Christ, placing them in Christ. That's what matters. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things, the new has come. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Let me ask you this question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him personally? Do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Regardless of your past, regardless of how you've dropped the ball in life, you're imperfect, you've messed up, listen, you're who Christ came to save. God so loved the world, a lost world, a dark world, a world of sinful people who come short, woefully short of God's glory. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I remember an old hymn we used to sing when I was growing up. It goes something along these lines. I know my name is there. It says something like this. My name is in the book of life. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. I rise above all doubt and strife and read my title clear. I know, I know that my name is there. I know, yes I know, my name is written there. Do you know that? Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you've never been saved this morning, here in just a moment, we're going to 
sing. I want to invite you to come. You say, Pastor, I, I want to know that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How can I know with confidence? Listen, turn away from your sin. Place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. As we sing here in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to just slip out of where you've been seated and you come pray with me or one of our other pastors here to the side. We invite you to come this morning. Maybe you need to come talk to one of us about baptism. You need to be baptized publicly. Publicly show the world that you've come to faith in Christ. Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm just so thankful. Lord, that you are a God who is holy and yet you specialize in changing lives. And God, that's what I'm reminded of when I read this brief family history of Moses and Aaron. Weak, incapable, helpless people who have a past. <laughs> Lord, you use such individuals so that you get all of the glory. Lord, would you be glorified through our lives and through our witness? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.